Welcome to Coach House Talks. As we start the uh, New Testament, we've already seen that there are four Gospels, four different accounts of Jesus' life. And as Andy explained last week, three of these Gospels are very similar. And a lot of the stories in Matthew, Mark and Luke overlap. They exist in different versions. But John writes a very different account. Unique stories and events and a very different style tell us that this gospel is offering a different perspective. So what is that perspective? We might also ask, why are there four gospels anyway? Wouldn't one big account be sufficient? Well, obviously not, because God ordained four different accounts to be written, and that must be for a good reason. Now, one of the reasons that there are four Gospels is because each of them shows a different facet of Jesus. Matthew demonstrates Jesus' right to rule as an earthly king in the line of David. Mark portrays Jesus as a worker, whilst Luke shows Jesus as an ordinary man. The common theme in these three uh, Gospels is that they're all facets, they're all types of things to do with men or people. Men, workers and kings are in fact to some degree interchangeable. So it shouldn't surprise us to see that the content of the Gospels is also to some extent interchangeable and of a similar style. John's Gospel, however, is quite different. And this is because it focuses on the spiritual nature of Jesus. A man can become a king. A king can become a worker. But a king cannot become the Holy Spirit. A man cannot become the Holy Spirit. A worker cannot become the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can come and dwell in us when we accept Jesus into our lives, but the Holy Spirit does not become us or ever change his nature. His communion is only with the Father and the Son. This is why John's Gospel is very different and quite distinct. <coughs> so, <coughs> why did John write his Gospel? Well, in chapter 20, in verse 31, John says, But these are written, which means the content of the previous 20 chapters, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So let's reflect on that. So that you will continue to believe. John was writing for the benefit of new believers in the churches that Paul had been establishing in Asia and Greece. Places like Ephesus, who had received a letter from Paul instructing them in spiritual matters and urging them to live in unity. Or Corinth, where they had also received a letter from Paul because they were sliding back to pagan practices. Or Colossae, to whom Paul said, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. 
So why do you keep on following the rules of this world? As Christians, we can't survive without continual reference to the Word of God and to fellowship based upon the Word of God. John has given us words that will help us to continue to believe. Now, whilst we're talking about the Word, that brings me to the opening words of the book. Get past the first three words. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was God and the Word... Oh, got that the wrong way around, haven't I? The Word was with God and the Word was God. So remember John's purpose? To help his readers continue to believe. Every society has preconceived ideas about the purpose of life. Every... um, Society has preconceived ideas about the end of life and about what comes after life. In John's day, many people believed in God. They also believed in a Messiah, someone who would come to rescue the oppressed people from foreign rulers. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that they made a few errors in what they believed. They thought that the Messiah would be an all-conquering king as seen in Psalm 68. And so many failed to believe in Jesus when he came. In fact, even those who did believe Jesus later started to question the facts as they were faced with people pointing out that Jesus had neither come as a conquering king nor had he actually set the Jewish people free from their earthly oppression. Now, make no mistake... Even with our benefit of hindsight, we can still find ourselves questioning aspects of our belief when things don't go according to the way we think they should. This is why our understanding of Scripture is paramount. We must read it, listen to it, share it, and talk about it. John knew that what he wrote had to fit in with the understanding that the people had at the time. He could see where these potential misunderstandings lay and he sought to cover these areas as best as he could. This is why the book opens with, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now this is because at the time, the Jews believed that the written word on the scrolls in the temple were equal to or interchangeable with God himself. Even today, there's a rule in the synagogue that the Torah cannot be read unless there are at least 10 adult men present. That's called a minyan, if you want the Jewish word. However, if there are only nine adult men in the synagogue, well, the Torah itself is counted as making up the 10. This is because the Jews understand that God is an adult man and that the Word and God are one, interchangeable, and so the written Word can count towards the requirement to have ten men present. Do you get where John's coming from? By placing this statement right at the beginning of the book, John is using a facet of the law that would have been familiar to the Jews of the time to establish exactly who he believed Jesus to be. 
By using the phrase in the beginning, John is establishing that Jesus did not just appear. He's affirming that Jesus has been in existence since before the beginning of time. And that was repeated in his first letter, which Andy read to us at the beginning of the service. In fact, further than this, John says that the word gave life to everything that was created. God created everything through him. Now, the Apostle Paul confirmed this when he wrote to the Colossian church saying, He, that is Jesus, existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything. Okay, two people saying the same thing. Now, in the first six verses of John, John doesn't actually name Jesus specifically. But in verse 14, he says, The word became human and lived amongst us. And then in verse 15, John, meaning John the Baptist this time, so don't get the two Johns confused, John testified about him when he said, This is the one I was talking about. And finally, in verse 17, John says, The law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. So in just 17 verses, John has neatly proved that the person known to many as just Jesus Christ was not only the promised Messiah, but also the author and deliverer of all creation, and the same one who walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. So much in 17 verses. I could meditate on that all day. But you might be pleased to know that I'm not going to dissect the rest of the book in quite so much detail. What I want to look at in the second part is the seven miracles in the book. So let's remember uh, John's purpose to help his readers continue to believe. Now that John has established who Jesus is, he needs to establish his authority. To do this, John refers to seven miracles that Jesus performs, each one linking back to the Old Testament. Now, this is where knowing the Old Testament helps in understanding what John has to say. And what we'll do is we'll just briefly look at each of the miracles and we'll see what it shows us about Jesus' authority. So the first miracle, you're quite familiar with, changing water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. Now, John himself does not provide us with an in-depth reasoning of what happened, other than to tell us that this was the first time Jesus had revealed his glory and that the disciples believed in him. John didn't need to add any detail because his readers would have immediately linked the wine in the story with the prophecies in Joel and Amos. Joel 3.18 says, In that day the mountain will drip with sweet wine. Water will fill the stream beds of Judah, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple. Now the prophet Amos actually quoted from Joel in chapter 9 verse 13 of his writing, 
when he said, The terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. But then he added this, I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. Now, we often associate these words with what we call the second coming of Jesus. And that is in fact correct. But remember, prophecy often has three fulfillments. One in the time it was written, one in the end times, which is what we often associate it with, and one in Jesus' time. There's lots of prophecies that have a triple fulfillment, and that's, it's easy to miss. When you know one, you can miss the other. So this is why we're reminding you about what's in Joel and Amos. By linking these thoughts together, John is showing that if the sweet wines appeared, then so must the Messiah But John has a second picture here. Remember the setting at the start of the book. John is associating the events at the beginning of the book with the creation story in the beginning. And here we see a blessing coming out of the waters exactly as it had done on the first day of creation. John is reinforcing the point that God, who created the earth and walked with Adam in the garden, was the man that they knew as Jesus Christ. A fountain had indeed burst forth from the Lord's temple. His name was Jesus, and he is the master of creation. Second miracle, chapter 4. It concerns the son of a government official. The boy was dying. Now, whilst Jesus was on his way to Galilee... He'd stopped in Cana. Hmm, same place. The official was in Capernaum and heard that Jesus was close by. He went to Jesus, but he did not take the boy with him. Those in the crowd and some officials considered Jesus to be a prophet like Elijah and Elisha. They probably thought that Jesus could go to Capernaum and lay his hands on the boy in the same way that both Elijah and Elisha had done. Remember, they both raised children from the dead. But Jesus chose not to do this. He had no need to be present in the same way that Elijah and Elisha had. Jesus was showing that he didn't have to be present in order to effect a healing. John is proving that Jesus has authority over space. There is no physical space that Jesus does not have authority over. The third miracle (coughs) is the healing of a man at the pool of Bethesda. And again, we see an important connection here to the Old Testament, as John is at pains to tell us that the pool was near the sheep gate. Okay, that's not idle information, it's there for a reason. The sheep gate was the gate through which the sacrifices came to the temple. It was the first and last gate in Nehemiah's account of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and was the only gate that was sanctified or blessed at that time. Now, the true Lamb of God, the Alpha and Omega, first and last, has entered by the sheep gate. 
The man concerned had been there lame for 38 years. And Jesus healed him. By this, John is showing that Jesus has authority over time. Okay. The fourth miracle is found in chapter 6 and is the feeding of the 5,000. Well-known story. But of course, it's linked to the Old Testament, isn't it? In Exodus chapter 16, God provided food for the Israelites while they wandered in the desert. This food was called manna, which roughly translated means, what is it? Now, whilst this food sustained the people physically, it also represents God's spiritual blessing upon them. This miracle is the one that Jesus explained himself. In verse 32, he says, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now what you need to know here is that at the time, the Pharisees were actually teaching that the Messiah would repeat the miracle of Exodus 16 and rain down bread from heaven. This is like, you said it, he did it. John is showing here that Jesus has authority over physical and spiritual needs. Okay, the fifth miracle. I told you these would be brief. The fifth miracle is Jesus walking on water. John kind of squeezes this miracle in in between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' explanation about the feeding of the 5,000. It sits between them. And this miracle appears in Matthew and Mark's gospel in a longer form. So we'll go back to the earlier point here about why they're different. John only gives a brief account here because the focus of his point, as with all these miracles, is Jesus' authority. So we need to think back to the Old Testament where there are a number of stories of triumph over water. Moses parted the Red Sea. Joshua and Elijah and Elisha all parted the Jordan River. Noah built a boat to escape the flood. But Jesus shows that he has greater authority than any of those past heroes. He didn't need to appeal to God the Father first. He didn't need to move the water to walk on the land. He didn't need to build a boat for a hundred years that kept everyone safe. John is proving that Jesus has authority over the natural world. The sixth miracle is the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. And in this story, Jesus tells the blind man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Okay, now this is a different pool. So this pool was at the southern end of the city. So we can contrast that with the other pool, which was at the north end of the city. At the time of the event, when this actually happened, Jesus had been in Jerusalem celebrating the Festival of Shelters. This festival, 
which happened at harvest time, was to remind the Jews of the blessings of God and how he'd kept them during their time in the wilderness. Now, the water that was ceremonially used during this um, festival was taken from the pool of Siloam. So we start to see the links here. There's a little subtle wordplay going in in what John is writing here because Siloam means sent. Jesus sent the man to wash in the pool, but John is reminding us that Jesus is the one who was sent by the Father. At the beginning of this story, Jesus' disciples assumed that the reason the man was blind was because somebody'd sinned. Jesus corrects the disciples, quashing their assumption by saying that the man was blind in order that the power of God could be demonstrated. And for those of us that carry some form of physical ailment or impairment, maybe we're just afflicted purely so that the power of God can be demonstrated. It's here that Jesus states that he is the light of the world. By healing blindness, Jesus has very literally brought light into the man's life. Light is the opposite of darkness and represents freedom from sin. Jesus also uses the title Son of Man in this section, which, again, is a link to the Old Testament. Well, another link to the Old Testament. Daniel. The Pharisees linked this passage to Daniel chapter 7 because they expected that to indicate the Messiah. You see, they're already teaching this. Like the other example, they were already teaching something and yet when it's standing in front of them, they didn't listen. They didn't go, oh yeah, we've taught that, it must be right. They changed their minds somehow. This is what Daniel wrote. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The expected Messiah, Jesus. John is proving that. This parable shows that Jesus has authority over sin and darkness. The seventh miracle is the raising of Lazarus. This is the last parable, and it's there to prove that Jesus has authority over death. Don't need to say anything more about that. It's very obvious. Seven miracles to prove that the person that many people knew as Jesus was the Messiah whom they had been expecting. Now, numerically, of course, seven is the number of perfection. It represents the union of God, which is the number three, and the man, which is number four. These seven authorities are the only ones. There's nothing not covered by these. 
John demonstrates that Jesus fulfilled all the expectations of the Messiah and that he had complete authority. These seven points. Jesus, master of creation, authority over space, authority over time, authority over physical and spiritual needs, authority over the natural world, authority over sin and darkness, and authority over death. Now, Jesus is, uh, sorry, John is presenting these facts because we all have a tendency to regress back to our knowledge of ourselves and the scientific teaching of society around us. Like those who went before, those people to whom Paul was writing, they were regressing because they kind of they kind of thought about something else. They thought about what the world was teaching them, what the Jewish church was teaching them, the Pharisees, all these things designed to take them away from Jesus. They had found the answer, and yet they get dragged back, and so do we. So the point of this, and the purpose of this, John is telling you that Jesus has authority over all these things, and he's telling you these things so that you will continue to believe. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.